Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in History. Today we are talking with Carla Rotella and Michael Ezra about their new book, The Bittersweet Science, 15 Writers in the Gym, in the Corner, and at Ringside, just out from University of Chicago Press. Uh, Carla Rotella is Professor of English and Director of the American Studies Program at Boston College. Michael Ezra, Professor of American Multicultural Studies at Sonoma State University. I'm delighted to talk about this book. Really exciting collection of essays, some great writing. Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you. And Carlo, welcome. Thanks for having me. There's so much insight collected here. The two of you edited this volume. Before we get to the book itself, uh, if we could hear from both of you a little bit about your academic background, what brought you to the academy, what brought you to the field, and then maybe also your background in fight writing, what uh, what brought you to the place where the two of you were uh, working together to edit this book. Mike, could we start with you? Sure. Uh, I've liked boxing for a very long time. Uh, been pretty young. I remember having Ring magazines when I was seven or eight years old. I can tell by the dates on the covers. They're still in the attic of my parents' house. And uh, when I got to college, I had to write a thesis. And uh, the one thing I had in mind was write about something that you like and something that you know about. And so boxing was the thing that really came to mind and Muhammad Ali. So I did my undergraduate thesis on Ali, and then I did my master's thesis on Muhammad Ali, too, and then my PhD dissertation on Muhammad Ali. And some other things as well, like the civil rights movement. So that brought me to eventually writing the book about Muhammad Ali, and now this one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Carl, your background? Well, let's see. Um, I mean, I, you know, just because I was a kid in the 1970s, I, you know, I followed boxing, was interested in it, but not passionate about it. Uh, when I went off to grad school uh, in American studies, my first job was at Lafayette College in Eastern Pennsylvania. Mm. And, uh, it, you know, it happens that Larry Holmes, former heavyweight champion of the world, is from Easton and has a gym there. And there's not an infinite number of things to do in Easton, Pennsylvania. <laughs> yeah. And so I ended, up, uh, I ended up hanging out at the gym and really getting into it as a place of learning, you know, of teaching and learning. And, and just got really, you know, you're in that moment when you start an academic career and you're sort of figuring out how to be a teacher and trying to figure out how to, how to reach students. And, you know, most of us sort of come too far and work too hard to sort of make our students learn. Mm. At the beginning, I was really fascinated in the gym where, you know, Larry Holmes was sort of the sensei. He was the master in the gym, and he didn't expend any effort at all in teaching. You know, smart students would just pay attention to him. You know, they'd jump rope facing the ring when he sparred because mm. there, was, there was things to learn. Yeah. And I just got really interested in it as a place of, of learning. So I really got into the fights through the gym, and not because I was working out there, but just because I'm curious about the kinds of knowledge and the kinds of uh, education that were available there. Mm-hmm. And then at some point, the two of you got to know each other. Do you want to tell that story? Maybe let's go to Mike. Sure. Um, uh, my sister uh, is a college professor, and her, her first college professor job was at Lafayette College in eastern Pennsylvania, where one Carlo Rotella was a professor there in English. <laughs> and Carlo would have new faculty come over to his house once in a while for get-togethers and such, including my sister. And I guess they got to talking, and uh, my sister told him that uh, – my brother's in graduate school in American studies. 
he used to box and now he is writing about boxing. So you might want to introduce yourself. So uh, Carlo and me met up in 1995 at the American Studies Association in Kansas City. It was my first year of graduate school and probably his third or fourth year as a professor, approximately, I would say. And we started chatting. We took a walk, talked about boxing. And uh, from there, our partnership and friendship was born. I will add to that, however, that uh, I was writing my first piece ever, academic piece ever about boxing. And I said, I I need to send this to somebody. And Marnie said, well, my brother will definitely give you a reading. You know, he's he's not going to go easy on you. It's going to be difficult. He's a very argumentative person, but uh, (laughs) he will give you a reading. And. And the thing is that not only did he give me a reading, and remember, you know, he was just a first-year grad mm-hmm. student at that point, and, and I was at least appeared to be a professor. And uh, not only did he give me a reading, but he kind of, you know, he took me to task on both the historical stuff and the technical uh, boxing mm-hmm. stuff. And it turns out that there's no one else in the academy, pretty much no one else, except for maybe the philosophy professor, Gordon Marino, uh, who writes for the Wall Street Journal. There's really no one who can do both of those things. There's no one who can say, you know, you got the sequence of punches wrong and your history of industrial, you know, uh, America doesn't quite match up with the history of boxing. So that was the other thing. I was just, I was thrilled to find kind of an ideal, you know, an, an ideal reader who, whose historical understanding of boxing certainly, you know, went way beyond mine. So it's really been uh, boxing and the academy for the two of you from the first time you met. That's cool. And then eventually writing becomes the key thing for me and Carlo anyway, because, uh, He's always been a writer I admired, and he helped me a lot with my own Mm. book and real good comments and rewriting certain sections even for me to kind of show me how to do it the right way. So that's another level of the partnership Mm. as well. So let's walk forward in time from 97 to when the idea for this project comes up, if it was later, and then what the process looked like for pulling a collection like this together. I guess I'll take the part where, you know, we we go back, we've been going back and forth for years. We have a circle, a group of people who we email with or people whose opinion of boxing we respect and whose opinion of writing we respect. And, you know, just for years, we've been going around saying, hey, did you did you happen to catch that piece, you know, in, in this magazine because it was really good? Or, you know, how bad was that piece that, you know, appeared in the usual uh, boxing venues? And and uh, and slowly sort of that turned from, I wish, you know, there was one place to go where we could kind of collect the people who we who we go to when we want to figure something out, you know, uh, and that we turned from I wish to, well, we could do this, right? We could, we could collect these people, we could find these people and, and, uh, and put it and put it together. So that part of it, at least is a long ongoing conversation that um, for a long time was just the kind of thing you do where you, you know, you're really passionate about something and you're sort of curious to see who's writing about it. Well, and then, and then it went from that to, well, let's, let's, let's do this thing. And it turns out there's, there's no, there's no book like this in the boxing literature going as far back as you like. There's no book of original essays, um, you know, uh, written expressly for that book, the kind of collection of, of just people who are active at the time. Everything is reprints and, and uh, you know, sort of greatest hits. These emails we've been exchanging since the 90s with this group of people, and there's been almost no turnover of who is in this group. It's been six or seven uh, hardcore contributors. Mm-hmm. And the stuff that is written about boxing, first of all, I regularly feel like I'm the only person in the conversation who doesn't know what everyone else is talking about. The, As do I. The level of boxing discourse is incredibly high. The, the people who are talking with us, some of them have, have, were fighters years ago, people who have been managers 40 years in the business. It's the range of things you can ask them about any topic. 
concerning boxing is incredible. Eventually, it became obvious to me and Carlo, there has got to be a way to collect right. stuff. And I mean, some of this stuff you can cut and paste almost right into an essay and you have a first draft. Right. So right. And um, as far as turning, turning this into action, it was basically just coming up with the idea and then finding 15 people, about 10 of them were obvious. And then there were just a couple of extra people that we had to get to fill out the book. Almost every draft we got was excellent from the beginning. It came together extraordinarily quickly and on deadlines. Well, I guess the other thing I'll say is that, you know, the nature of what we were offering was designed to appeal to exactly the, the, the few people who we had in mind, right? So the people who, people who are good writers and who know what they're talking about. Um, and what we were offering was essentially the company mm-hmm. in the book. And we were offering editing, which at sort of at this historical juncture, um, someone who's interested in writing about boxing really doesn't get much editing. Or, so if they write for boxing-related publications, which are mostly online, they don't get edited. And if they write for general interest publications, they get edited by people who don't know much about boxing, even if they do know about writing, mm-hmm. right? So what we were offering was the company and the editing and the chance to sort of participate in what's either the you know, glorious last stand or amazing comeback of boxing writing as a genre of literature. But we weren't offering any money, um, and not everyone was a you know, tenured academic who could afford to do things for free. And I'm amazed by how many people said, yes, there are a couple who yeah. got away. Yeah. Um, Margaret Goodman, who's uh, uh, if there's such a thing as a famous ring physician, it's Margaret Goodman, who was um, the ring physician in Nevada for many years. She sent us a great essay about doping, um, but her lawyer told us that she couldn't. <laughs> that, yeah. that she could. She's very involved in this voluntary anti-doping association, this world group, and and it just would have caused her more problems, and probably mm-hmm. us too, um, more problems than she could handle at that moment. So there's a couple of people who got away, um, but we most of the people we asked said, I'd do it for those reasons. You know, we basically said, put your best foot forward, write your best stuff um, at any substantial length. And we promise you that we'll, it'll be attentively and carefully and sympathetically edited and that the other pieces will be good. All of this, I imagine, was before a publishing deal with Chicago. Mike, how did it go? That yeah, I think a, for, that was an advanced uh, contract, I think, because, yeah, I, I think we started rounding people up and then we at some point got an advanced contract and could and could tell them, OK, we have a home for it. Um, but I think the first round of stuff, which started in that email circle of ours, um, was on faith. Uh, and then eventually, but even then when we had the advanced contract, you know, we sort of, in every email, I was always very careful to say like, remember, there's no money in this, right? You know, we're not, we're not offering anything other than, you know, uh, satisfaction, craft satisfaction, basically. Um, and so, yeah, the fact that there was an advanced contract helped, but it wasn't, you know, a decider. I think, actually, honestly, I think for the academics, it was probably a bigger deal because, you know, it's a refereed publication. Right. <laughs> right. There's almost no academics in the book, though, I think about it. Like, how many working professors are there? Three and all full professors. Uh, four. Well, you, me, Lou Moore, Gordon Marino. There might be another one in there. Oh, I think oh. there's five. But I guess what yeah, I'm saying is the kind of endeavor that we were promising appealed to people because it was sort of a, you know, quixotic last stand, <laughs> not because like, you know, we, we, we had a, we had a contract and everything was yeah. in the bag. Right. So yeah, Mike, can you talk a little bit about the range of contributors here? Because that's also, I mean, you kind of alluded to this already, the two of you, but part of what makes this collection remarkable 
is the the breadth of knowledge and the scope, both uh, from insiders and from careful observers at ringside, I think you say in the, in the introduction. But could you talk a little bit about the various perspectives that make this collection what it is? So many of these contributors typify the kind of fighting and writing expertise that we were really looking for. And I do realize that there's such a jaded literary perspective that tries to make all these writing metaphors as if it was boxing and it really doesn't usually work out. But a lot of these writers do both. Robert Anasi has Golden Gloves experience and wrote a book about it. Bryn Jonathan Butler, he just got written up in the New York Times for his boxing training. And he also writes books about boxing. Donovan Craig, same thing, trained with Roy Jones Jr., like was sparred with ranked light heavyweights, also happens to be a great writer, didn't even know about him. Sarah Deming fought in the Golden Gloves, just published an op-ed in the New York Times. So on and on and on. So many of these people uh, have actually been involved in boxing, but uh, it's not necessarily how they make their living, but they're grounded in that experience with the sport. And it's not just as a fighter necessarily. I mean, probably our most knowledgeable boxing contributor is Charles Farrell, who I don't think ever set foot in the ring, um, but was a manager and uh, had ties to promoters. I mean, I think that, you know, I think our general idea was that if we, if, if we accept that boxing is sort of bottomlessly deep and, and mysterious, um, and you're not going to get to the bottom of it, the thing to do is to surround it, you know, is to get as many different perspectives as we can. So we have hands-on, you know, uh, first-person perspective in the ring from the people Mike mentioned, and also say Sam Sheridan and others who have fought. Um, we have managers and trainers. Uh, you know, Charles Farrell wrote this great essay for us uh, uh, called Why I Fixed Fights about sort of why and how to yeah. fix the fight um, that turns into sort of a philosophical defense of doing that. Um, but then we have uh, ringsiders, you know, uh, who, are, who are close to the action but not in it. Um, and we have a more historical perspective of the kind that uh, Mike or that uh, Gary Lee Moser uh, contributed. Or, and, and there are others like that. And the idea is um, that there are all these ways to uh, get at what boxing might mean, um, and that there's this deep, deep body of kind of inside technical knowledge in the fight world, and we need to access that. But there's also a great deal of resonance that the lessons you learn in the fight world extend well beyond it, and we also need to access that. Um, and so we're looking for people who can sort of cross back and forth authoritatively between insider in the fight world and outside observer. I mean, one thing I'll say about that email group that we've had is that, and Mike will back me up on this, is that, you know, we'll be arguing about, you know, somebody's jab from the 1940s and we'll end up in an argument about, you know, uh, we, we tend to have the same argument all the time about whether it's more important to like, you know, the modernist idea of making it new is more important or the idea of performing properly in a genre. So we'll end up arguing about music or movies or some other thing. And, and, that kind of resonance, that ability to go inside the fight world, so it's not just metaphor, right. but you actually know the technical stuff, and then go out, um, is another thing that really kind of, it's kind of a hallmark of the book, of, of the ability to sort of, to, to start by looking deeply at what's happening in the ring or in the gym, but then looking through the ropes and out mm -hmm. the other side at, you know, what's beyond it. Well, and even the, the border between where the fight world uh, 
starts and where it stops and what's in the fight world and what's out of the fight world. I love the way that it, what came through in the book through Hamilton Nolan's essay with Darius and, and Farrell's essay and, and some of the others, the way in which the, the picture of what the fight world is, what boxing is, it becomes more than just the fighters. So understanding boxing as a technical craft, as an art, fights in the ring, but also boxing as a business and as a spectacle and as a, as a social practice in American culture comes into focus over the course of the collection, which I thought was brilliant. I mean, that's, you know, uh, Mike's training and my training in American studies coming through, I think, you know, that, you know, we're always interested in sort of like the close reading of the artifact itself and then the the, the historical context in which it appears. You know, I, I think the best three-word definition of American studies is Tom Wolfe's um, from early in his career where he says, what I do is form plus money, <laughs> yeah. basically, right? Um and and uh, and you know that's so important in the fight world to understand like how the money's flowing around the fight and how influence works and all those kind of things and and uh, you know there's a sort of there are these two traps one is to write about boxing as if it was just kind of a heroic spectacle kind of sports page purple writing and then the other trap is is the opposite of that just the sentimental which is the anti sentimental trap of you know. Uh, everything's fixed. Everything's corrupt. It's dirty, you know. And if you steer between those, if that's like Phil and Charybdis, and you steer between them, there's this whole world of ways to think about it. And it really does um, enact sort of the training that at least I got in grad school, which is, you know, you need to pay attention to the text on its own terms, and you need to understand it in its in its fullest sort of social and economic and political context. And, you know, one way to do that is to invite a lot of different people with a lot of different perspectives to, to, mm -hmm. to converge on your subject. One other essay that I'd really like to touch on is Sarah Deeming's essay, Real Million Dollar Baby, because she's the only one who addresses women in boxing uh, and inspired me to go, you know, learn more about Clarissa Shields. And, you know, there's the documentary on Netflix. Can you talk a little bit more about uh, including her, including her as the third essay? You know, what, what was important about bringing her piece to the place where it is in the collection? Well, there is definitely a gender imbalance in the book. Anyone who reads the table of contents can see that. And there is a gender imbalance in the sport mm -hmm. as well. But Sarah's essay wasn't included as a woman's essay, but I mean included because she's a really good writer who had a good mm -hmm. story. But I will say this. I already have gotten feedback from someone who said no one wants to read about that stuff. Wow. It's never good to make excuses about what authors you couldn't get. But uh, we did we did try. We did try to get a better gender balance in the book and uh, did it. Her essay was placed third, I would say, because it's one of the stronger essays and we wanted it up front. Hmm. And it does provide a diversity of, of, of the picture of boxing uh, to the reader. I think it's our only Olympic essay, too, mm -hmm. actually. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. It's probably also the longest piece in the book. Um, it, you know, it's a really substantial look at that world. And also yeah. the other thing she does in it that I think is really important is she um, we're always on the lookout for kind of undoing an easy uh, an, an easy cliche. And in this case, the easy cliche is Million Dollar Baby, which is a movie that I don't think any of our contributors has any use for. Um, and, you know, part of what she's after is, is, is to undo that, that, that particular narrative, you know, um, about the, the kind of, you know, saintly male trainer, you know, pulling the plug on his uh, helpless female fighter. Right. Um, and, uh, and that ambition, 
you know, sort of expertly woven through a real in-depth profile of Clarissa Shields, who, you know, between when she, when, when Sarah uh, wrote this piece and when the book came out, became a much bigger deal in the culture. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, she, uh, it was great to have her. And she's, a, she's an instructive example of, she's not one of the writers I knew about when we started. And um, I think she came to us because the sociologist, Eric Kleinenberg at NYU, I was talking to him about this book and this project. And he said, you know, you should really read Sarah Devin. Mm. Uh, and, and, uh, and that, so she came to us because uh, we were just talking about the project and, uh, and somebody smart made a connection. Mm. Um, and I've, you know, some of my favorite pieces in the book came to us that way. Rafael uh, Garcia's piece too um, mm-hmm. came to us like that. Uh, somebody said, Hey, have you read so-and-so? That's great. The other thing that's remarkable here is the, the historical scope going back all the way to uh, Jeffries and uh, Jack Johnson, and then come forward to, uh, you know, discussions of fighters who are who are still fighting today. You know, some of the essays come up to 2014, 2015. Uh, Mike, can you talk a little bit about wanting to bring a strong, overarching historical sense of, of boxing's past and present to the collection? I think that the past is more important to most boxing fans mm-hmm. than the present. And we were trying to hit multiple audiences with this book. And one of the audiences was the hardcore boxing fan. Although the hardcore boxing fan is used to accepting poor writing, unedited, uh, journalistic, uh, in the worst way, uh, as, as acceptable copies. But with the boxing fan, we tried to seize upon that idea that boxing is made by its history and that most Boxing fans, I would even argue, know more about the top 10 heavyweights of all time and could make that list easier than they could name the top 10 heavyweights mm-hmm. today. And so we wanted to build upon that love for boxing history by really trying to teach readers how to analyze the record book. Uh, what Carlo was saying before about how we have people who make a good blend of insiders and outsiders in boxing so that they're not looking at it as just a sham. But they're also not looking at it romantically as totally an athletic contest in its purest sense. Really, the athletic contest, the boxing match itself, is the, is the least of it in a lot of ways in the sport. The business part of it really is the most important part. So much of it is structured for certain outcomes. In the introduction, one of the things that, uh, that you really addressed that comes back, especially in your essay, Mike, is the idea this real historical sense of both a fighter's career arc and then the way that that comes to help us understand almost as an analytical tool to understand the place of boxing in American culture was the idea of being pre-prime and then prime and then post-prime. How much energy and, and thought is put into discerning and determining when a fighter is in their prime? Can you talk a little bit about uh, what you were doing there and how it helps us to grasp this kind of broader picture of boxing that we've been talking about? When people look at a boxing match, I think they believe that both fighters are going in there to win and that they're at their best. And you're looking at a true rendition of the athletic purity. Um, but what I tried to explain to people was that boxers' careers obviously have a start, a middle, and an end. They have a peak and they have a denouement. And you can actually learn more, in my opinion, about fighters from when they're not at their peak. When, when they start to lose their natural aptitude, namely their speed, what other character attributes and skills and craft do they have to fall back on mm. beyond that? 
And I think too often people look at the record book and assume that every single fight has the same worth. Uh, but you really have to weigh fights according to when an athlete was in their career at what point, and also where their opponent was in their career as well. Um, oftentimes when people watch a boxing match, they often just look at one fighter. It's really hard to watch both fighters during mm -hmm. a boxing match. You generally concentrate on one person's movements only. And that's, I think, goes to the fans' perspective as well when they analyze the record book. They kind of do not understand that your partner is your performance. Mm -hmm. you're, you're as good as your opponent will let mm -hmm. you look. And that fighters can look like they are the greatest fighter in the world against 60 or 70 or 80 overmatched opponents. And then the minute they get in against someone who's just as great as them, then we really find out what they're made of. So I was trying to explain to people that you have to do more than just look at the record book. The result of a fight can be extraordinarily deceiving. You have to be able to see the fight and you have to be able to know the opponent and what they've done as well. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, that kind of deep knowledge um, is sort of the opposite of this idea of the numbers. You know, what do the numbers mm -hmm. tell us? You know, because the, the number, as Mike says, the numbers are so qualitatively complex. And, it, cause, and, and that's not even taking into account the other numbers, the invisible numbers, like how much money was riding on this right. and, you know, how much money did they plan to make on this guy in the future and all that. Yep. You know, one of our most interesting contributors is Gary Moser. And he's like that, you know, that guy who's really good at betting on the horses, but has never seen a horse, yeah. you know, like he, you know, he's really, he, he's a mad, he's the master. And for many years, I relied on him to do this. He's the master at looking at the records of fighters. And there's this website called boxrec.com where you can, you know, it's all live links. So you can look at a fighter's record. You can click on the records of his opponents and then look at their opponents and click on those and look at their opponents and, you know, endlessly go through. And Gary's just the master of, of deconstructing the numbers to explain what a record means. Right. Right. And, and to show like all of these numbers, as Mike was saying, all of these numbers have very little meaning, but this one number is really crucial, you know, or this one uh, fighter. And he's a great example. He's not an insider. You know, he's just somebody, he, he's a former accountant is what he is. And he just pays very close attention to the kind of qualitative weight of what appear to be quantitative measures. Right. So someone like him, he's the farthest thing in the world from a hands-on practitioner like Robert Anasi or a manager like Charles Farrell. Um, but he's giving us that perspective, that deep historical perspective. And, and some of this is just, it's technologically enabled, you know, right. with boxrec.com, you can endlessly click through the history of boxing to sort of figure out who fought, who fought, who fought, who, you know, um, and what, and what it means. And, and you start to see pattern and he's just great for that. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, I, I always say to Mike, I wish I had this for my other academic interests. You know, I wish I had a circle of people on whom I could try out ideas, uh, and, and, and on whom, to whom I could go with a question, Hey, has anybody ever figured out X? And get an answer and be confident and feel like, okay, I can put this in my work, you know, because I feel, I feel strong about it. Um, and it's, you know, it's great to have at least some of the members of, not all the members of our group wanted to, wanted to do it, um, but to have at least some of them in the book is, you know, it's partially for that reason is that I really value those perspectives and have really, you know, professionally and in a craft sense really profited by it. And, and Gary's essay really does kind of typify the book in a sense that, it does do that deep historical work, but the point is to debunk long-held notions about boxing, which I think is what almost every single essay in the book does. And it doesn't do it to debunk boxing itself. 
it does it to help people get a better reading on the sport in order to make meaning of it because we think it's important. Right. So Gary's work kind of takes these celebrated fighters like Mike Tyson, Oscar De La Hoya, Roy Jones Jr., people who the casual boxing fan would say are the best fighters of their generation. And he basically goes to their record and tells you why they are nowhere near the best fighters of their generation. So every single essay in the book does something to kind of correct a flawed conventional wisdom about the sport. And, and part of what we're, a lot of the essays are after is saying, you know, there's a kind of celebrity system or a, a kind of common knowledge system uh, about boxing. And, and sometimes it conforms with reality. You know, Muhammad Ali is the most famous fighter ever, and he's one of the greatest heavyweights ever. That, you know, sometimes it works. But sometimes it doesn't, and and and, uh, and that's you know one of the ambitions of the book is not just to you know we're not interested in tearing down you know this fighter or that one so much as we are in saying you know this there are these unlooked for strata of the fight world, and it's not just a matter of creating more honest picture of of, of who really who has merit. It's also a matter of saying well where does the meaning lie, mm-hmm. you know? And I think you know the, for for a casual observer the meaning often lies in places that turn out to be trivial like you know, how perfectly pebbled the stomach muscles are of this, you know, of this fighter, or the fact how perfectly pebbled his 40 and 0 record is, right? Um, when in fact, uh, what's really happening is, you know, some much larger and more meaningful, uh, either transformation of American life or, uh, or lesson in how craft works or lesson in like, you know, how money works. Uh, and, and that's the other thing that, you know, what really attracted us to a lot of this work was that, that desire to look past um, the easy solution. Uh, you know, it's like that student in your seminar, the one who undoes the kind of pat solutions that everybody else rushes to, you know, like everyone kind of rushes to a conclusion about a book and they're like, okay, so we've decided it's about man's inhumanity to man, you know? And then one student says, Hey, wait a minute. Uh, let's think about this some more. That doesn't really work. If you think about it this other way. Um, and that those are kind of the kind of writers who we were looking for. And one of the essays that does that with uh, a historical fight that never happened is Crown uh, Weingarten's work on the myth of Dempsey yeah. Wills, where there's kind of been these, you know, ongoing questions about, you know, the what ifs, which is also a big part of boxing culture. My friends who love boxing are always talking about what if, what about this matchup? What about that matchup? This fighter from the 80s versus this fighter from the 20s. But this is a matchup that didn't happen for other reasons. And one of the things we get in this essay is some significant meditation on the way that race plays into what boxing means. Can you talk about that a little more? Because it's not just this essay. It's throughout the collection, um, because race is so significant for what boxing means, uh, it comes up over and over again in your essay too, Carlo. So could the two of you maybe talk a little bit about uh, how you wanted to make sure that race was addressed uh, in this collection? Mike, why don't you do Dempsey Wills? You know more about it than I do. Okay. Um, The Dempsey Wills essay fits into this theme that we have about debunking longstanding myths Mm -hmm. about boxing. In this case, the idea is that Harry Wills, an African-American contender, basically got color-lined out of his shot at glory versus Jack Dempsey and that it was a great injustice. The part about the color line might be true, but all the other assumptions that Wills would have beaten Dempsey are exploded in this essay. And it really gets people to think about the nature of injustice and the nature of opportunity, Mm. I think, uh, and how people misread race in boxing so often. Uh, I, I do think people have tried to treat race in boxing and have done very poorly. They reduce everything to simply prejudice and lost opportunity. Uh, there's, there's no textured view of how race and culture fits into the sport that I really see. And, and I think that texture 
you know, I mean, that text is present just in the kind of re- revision of, of Dempsey Wills, but just to say, yeah, it, it, it was unjust that Harry Wills was prevented from getting his shot at Dempsey. But that injustice, um, uh, you know, shouldn't blind you to the fact that Dempsey would almost certainly have slaughtered him, right? Um, and that, and, and, you know, that he was unjustly prevented from, you know, getting, getting pounded by Dempsey. Um, and the way that texture shows up in the book elsewhere is in all kinds mm-hmm. of moments. I think about Charles Farrell's moment. There's a moment he's got a fighter um, who's a former champion who he's sort of been reduced to fighting on the very fringes of the profession. And he just lost a tank town fight. And he comes to his manager for, you know, five bucks. And uh, the manager says, well, you know, we're staying at the hotel. You can eat at the hotel. You know, it's fine. You can just eat, you know, you can put it on your bill. And, and, the, and the fighter, you know, without saying so, clearly would just prefer to go elsewhere. You know, it's not comfortable or made to feel welcome mm-hmm. in that hotel. You know, that's mm-hmm. the kind of uh, nuanced sort of everyday texture of, of uh, racial difference and the consequences yeah. of it that I think the fight world, the fight world gives you a, a million examples of that. You know, the guy I wrote about Bernard Hopkins is, you know, an extremely, he's an extremely impassioned and articulate critic of American race relations. And he has whole long riffs that he does on the prison industrial complex and, and, uh, and sort of the, you know, kind of Gramscian riffs on, on the, the power of mass culture, you know, very similar, in fact, to what you'd get at the American mm-hmm. Studies Association, except that, you know, he didn't finish high school and he got his high school equivalency while he was in prison. And there are these kind of homespun critiques, you know, so there's a case where, it's not implicit. It's not tacit. You know, it's not the writer finding this moment in observation. It's more, I just, you know, I, I give him a lot of room to talk because he's mm-hmm. a great talker and he has these, he has, these, he has, he has a, a vision of how race works and, and, and money works in boxing. And I figured, you know, he should, he should have a platform to, to talk it out. Uh, and I ended up fighting with my editors. Um, a part of the essay appeared in the New York Times magazine. And I ended up having a conversation with my editors about his language that they wanted to, they wanted to like regularize mm-hmm. his diction, mm-hmm. you know, and I thought it was important that they don't. I thought it, would be, it was really important to, to hear and see that this is a homemade critique that, you know, he learned in Greaterford Prison, mm-hmm. not at Princeton. Uh, and and so that's another way I think that that sort of race and the analysis of race enters into mm-hmm. the book. That's kind of how the bittersweetness part of it comes in, in terms of trying to turn people's views around on things that they may have gotten backwards to kind of give a more nuanced portrait. So like Dick's fight. Fix fight preserve the health of the fighters and allow people to get paid without damage. Fix fights destroy the integrity of the sport. Also true. And I think that begins right from the introduction with the, you know, we make no attempt to construct a moral defense. Right. Of boxing, right. right? Part of what makes it worth writing about is it, it is freighted with all these injustices and imbalances of power. And, and, you know, at the heart of it, and one thing you'll see occurring again and again in the book is that fighters who appear to be the most sort of potent and competent individuals imaginable are... You know, they're really the most vulnerable and in some ways the most abject people in the fight world. They're sort of standing half naked in in the path of really big, powerful forces, Um, not just the money and the influence in the fight world, but larger historical and social and cultural forces. And that's, you know, in some ways kind of the biggest reversal of all, I think, is is to understand uh, uh, how fraught and complicatedly dangerous it is. To get into a boxing ring for all kinds of reasons that are, you know, technical, professional, historical, um, and economic, political, and so on. And if I would try and find a way to phrase it, it's that all these forces are kind of swirling around the fighter. And to sort of capture that is, I think, to appreciate just how exposed mm-hmm. they are. Uh, and how vulnerable they are to all, all, the, all the possibilities. And that's where I really appreciated some of those perspectives from the fighter, uh, like Bernard Hopkins, 
And then from the manager and, and Gordon Marino's essay on throwing in the towel, in control of someone's well-being financially, physically, their future, and, and from people who have uh, looked at history and looked at the business of boxing, really fascinating, really, really helpful. And, I, you know, I shared this with a friend who is a, an avid boxing fan over the weekend, and we were, we were hanging out for the day, and he would take the book and walk away, uh, <laughs> come back and say, oh, I just read this essay on, on Darius, and it was really fascinating, you know. One of the things I appreciate about this book is that it has a lot of service to do as an academic book, but it does, I think, reach fight fans. You know, I've already seen that just as I've shared it with friends. Well, that's the split, right? That's the fight fan who's interested in getting some original take on boxing. And then, you know, a reader who's just interested in how things work, you know, and the complexity. I mean, what I love about Gordon Marino's essay, which is about him deciding to throw in the towel on his fighter, is that... You know, so he's a philosophy professor, right? Mm. Uh, he runs a Kierkegaard Institute at St. Olaf. Right. <laughs> um, and so you'd think it would be that kind of piece. But in fact, the, to me, the most fascinating part is that he entered, you know, he considers the possibility that the guy who was helping him in the corner might have worked him, uh, might have gotten him to throw in the towel prematurely on his own fighters for his own self-interested reasons right. that this, uh, this right. other guy. So it's, you know, it, it's not just Gordon Marino's, you know, uh, philosophical conundrum. But also, like, did I get worked by, like, uh, you know, somebody who understood the technical inside functioning of the fight world better than I did? So it's not just a story about, um, you know, let's say the relationship between compassion and craft, but it's also a story about uh, stepping into a world where you are not sure what's going on. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and that, I think, is appealing, you know, that as a situation, especially a world that's, you know, filled with kind of brutal spectacle as a situation that I think that appeals to all kinds of people, not just fight fans, but rather mm-hmm. this, you know, I, I can see something's happening and I'm not positive what it is. Yeah. And, and something so great about Gordon's essay, I think. And by the way, that moment he throws in the towel where he may have gotten work becomes like a life philosophical moment that he now writes about in a book years later. And why did the guy work him? Because he wanted to get his son into the ring like 15 minutes earlier than he would have otherwise. Right, Some tiny little stupid consideration, like a selfish thing at the moment, becomes a life-changing event. That's kind of like what we're trying to get through with these personal essays in boxing, that it's these little things that people just would not be able to see until they're magnified. And another great thing about Gordon's essay, I think, is that it also turns the idea of quitting on its head, as does my essay, I think, as well. Uh, The boxing fan, for all these moral talks about boxing, the things that are valorized and considered good uh, are often things that I find personally to be the most repugnant. The idea that a guy shouldn't quit. The idea that someone should, should physically wait for a referee to stand in while they get their head bashed in by someone who's trained to do it. Uh, why not just fall down? Why not just not come out for the corner uh, in the next round? Uh, you know, why not just walk away? Uh, the idea that quitting is somehow bad. The throwing in the towel essay kind of changes that a little bit. I think that that's one of the sort of cliches of fight writing that, you know, one of the things we wanted to push back on is when, when writers who cover boxing matches are, are, are fairly free about calling people cowards and quitters and, you know, and you sort of forget reading that stuff that anyone who ever gets in a ring is, you know, absurdly brave. Right. And right. that, and that, and that the amount of, um, the amount of counterintuitive self-training that it requires to just, just to stay in there, you know, the first time you get hit and all that is, is enormous. And that's another thing 
to that's another uh, bad intellectual habit that gets expressed in bad writing habits. You know, dismissing a writer as a coward or having a yellow streak or being a quitter or whatever. Um, and so one of one of the tie-ins between uh, knowing what you're talking about in boxing and and being a good writer, I think, is finding original language to express more complicated understandings of, of these things that are so easily packaged in a cliche, you know, and thrown away. And people are so vulnerable to that because on the most basic level with boxing, most people who consume it have never participated in it. And so a lot of ideas can pass for true that don't get vetted by the audience who doesn't really know what they're watching. I mean, most people, I would say, in the baseball audience have played baseball. They Mm. have some basic fundamental level of what it feels like to catch the ball, to hit the ball. But with boxing... People have no idea. And so they, they make all these assumptions about what it feels like. And that ripples outward towards their understanding of the business of the sport. And I think they also, um, you know, it, it comes to another sort of cultural quirk, which is that Hollywood continues to make boxing movies or, or the same boxing movie um, as if it was the most popular sport in America. Right. Um, and so there's all this stuff that looks like boxing in the culture um, and, and, and just sort of, you know, fist fights in movies too, right? Um, and, and there are all these uh, bodies that look impressive in the culture. And so I think for very forgivable reasons or understandable reasons, people look at a boxing match and say, oh, I, I, I know what I'm looking at. You know, this guy's got a more a beautiful, you know, sculpted body and therefore he's stronger and, you know, whatever, or he's better. Um, or, you know, I, I know what I'm looking at. I'm looking at a coward or somebody, you know, who, who won't engage, whatever it is. And 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 part of that is just this this sort of you know your basic liberal arts impulse you know which is to say this text in front of us uh, has meanings that need to be uh, peeled back like the layers of an onion and understood and if you do that you may arrive somewhere totally different um, maybe controversial you know certain Charles Farrell's philosophical defense of fixing fights is controversial um, but uh, it uh, it's it you know one of the things we were looking for is rigorous thinking. Um, precisely in the places where a cliche so often has to do. A a lot of people watch boxing matches and the assumption is that the boxer is there to win, that that is the boxer's goal. And that can really be a fundamental misread of the whole sport. Boxing needs 20 losers or 30 losers or 40 losers to every winner. And those winners are really important and those losers are very important. And it's, it's kind of just like professional wrestling. I used to watch wrestling as a kid and I used to think, Oh wow, Andre the giant really killed that guy. But that guy <laughs> important part of the show. Andre's just waving his hand and hitting the guy in the head. The guy is then flipping over the ropes and making a facial expression and cutting his forehead with a razor blade. He's the guy who's doing all the work. So the, the loser is so important in boxing and people just don't understand that. Folks play roles. Winner is a role. And winner is such a role that even when you don't win the fight, the judges will give it to you if you're ordained mm-hmm. at that particular moment to win. Mm. And obviously the yeah, extended social applications of that particular insight are endless, right? That, uh, that's not something confined to boxing alone, but it's a place where boxing makes this really naked, you know, makes it really um, available if you know how to look. And some of it is knowing how to look. And I've never fought. I've never boxed. And, you know, I really rely on others to help me to look. Part of my thinking in, in working on this book with Mike was, who would I want to rely on? if I needed something explained to me. And I often do need something explained to me when it comes to boxing. Mm, mm-hmm. 
Well, one of the other things you do with the introduction, and including, and this kind of comes back to talking about what's going on with the title, you set up the collection in conversation with the history of, not just with the history of boxing, but with the history of boxing writing, uh, going back to Egan, and then you also uh, spend a couple pages talking about A.J. Liebling. Can you talk a little bit about how how those two voices kind of shaped some of the cliches um, that you that you pick up and deal with here? So for those who don't know, so A.J. Liebling uh, was, is sort of considered the dean of, of American boxing writers. He wrote for The New Yorker, especially in the 1950s. Uh, and his book, The Sweet Science, is a collection of, of those pieces. And, you know, Liebling is sort of the great, you know, if you want just a story about um, sort of there's a big fight coming to town. Uh, here's what I think is happening. I visited both camps. Then on the night of the fight, I went out to dinner. Then I went to the fight. And then this is what happened in the fight. And this is what I think it meant. He's the, you know he's the greatest right he's that he does he did that better than anybody um and it, he had a kind of knowing cultured uh very often very funny voice um and and the sweet science sort of stands as this landmark in boxing writing so it's not mm-hmm. so much that we're trying to undo the landmark but we're saying there's all kinds of things that that egan didn't talk about i mean, egan that liebling didn't talk about he didn't talk about uh he didn't talk about the money he didn't talk about losers. He didn't talk about. He didn't cover a lot of uh, low-grade tank town marginal fights where we spend a lot of mm-hmm. our time in the book. Right. Um, yeah. He also, you know, died in the early '60s, so he missed out on a lot of important boxing stuff. And he, it's not so much that, like, well, you know, it's not so much that don't read the sweet science. It's more like here is a whole set of of, of other subjects that that he never scratched the surface of. And, and Pierce Egan, just more briefly, is he's sort of the first boxing writer, uh, early 19th century England, Regency London, when boxing was completely illegal. And Pierce Egan was sort of a, he was kind of a fight writer, but also kind of involved in the fight world and sort of a gangster. Uh, and he's really the inventor of boxing uh, lingo for the writer, you know, so he wrote mm-hmm. in sort of code, right? So, uh, you know, <laughs> gin is blue ruin. And when the blood starts flowing, he calls it the claret, you know, so the claret yeah. began to flow, right? So he writes almost in this kind of, um, in, in this, in this uh, high, low slang, that's really uh, mesmerizing. And I think he has been a really potent, long lasting influence on boxing writing, this idea that there's like a specialized vocabulary that you can have access to that will, uh, that will make you feel like you're an insider. Um, Mm. and it does, and there are words to use properly and, and idea, you know, concepts to use properly, but it's also a bit of a trap, you know, the desire to be regarded by others as an insider, the desire to be regarded by others as, you know, having a kind of fight world aura about you is, is really a trap. In that it can warp your writing so that you're just kind of posturing for the reader. Um, and uh, so as much as, you know, I love reading Egan um, and, and Liebling, I also think about um, both of those writers. It's very much a studied performance, what they're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, they're playing a character. Um, and uh, one of the things that at least I was interested in was like, let's find some writers who want to play different kinds, other kinds of characters of, of all sorts. To wrap up, because we're coming to the end of an hour, can you talk about where this project brings you and what you might be doing next? Uh, what are you writing? Uh, what are the fights you're interested in that are coming up? What's next for you, Carlo? And then we'll go to Mike. Well, so I'm, I'm finishing up a, a book about a completely different subject, um, about a neighborhood on the south side of Chicago, South Shore, which is where I grew up, a, a, a real kind of one-volume study of a neighborhood, uh, which is pretty far removed from boxing. But 
uh, there are still, uh, you know, good fight stories to write. Um, I think the next obvious one to write is about Anthony Joshua, the newly crowned heavyweight mm-hmm. champion who mm-hmm. fight people think might be the first billion dollar athlete in world history. Um, mm. And yet who's, you know, stunning movie like victory over uh, Vladimir Klitschko, you know, <laughs> did sure, not yeah. merit a single word in some newspaper sports sections. Um, wow. yeah. So he's sort of a he's you know, he really raises this question that, you know, boxing is really a niche sport. Um, and yet uh, nobody makes anything like the kind of money that that uh, uh, the star in boxing, not a star, but the star in boxing makes. So Floyd Mayweather was the highest paid athlete in the world for years. Um, yeah. And Anthony Joshua, who's uh, British, but of Nigerian parentage, you know, has an opportunity to make all kinds of crazy global money. Um, so that, and he's about to make his American debut. So that's an obvious magazine uh, story that I would like to write. Um, you know, there's a lot of good, there's a lot of interesting fights out there. Um, but the sort of the, the picture of Anthony Joshua, who's like good looking and clean cut and wholesome and, and loves his mother, um, <laughs> yeah. cleaning up the heavyweight division, which is full of the usual kind of maniacs and louts and, you know, and, and uh, interesting freaky characters uh, makes just, it's a good story. And I'd like to write it for some magazine. Yeah. How about you, Mike? Yeah, well, I uh, I don't have a book-length project uh, right now, but I do think that the Muhammad Ali literature really has a long way to go. It's pretty amazing that the guy is maybe the most written about person in popular culture ever in history, and yet people keep circling around the truth, and they're not even coming close to the bullseye in my estimation, although how would I know? Because I don't know the truth about Ali either. But I think there needs to be uh, in-depth psychological biography of the man from his retirement years on. Uh, We've studied the boxing career already, but like to really get a portrait of Ali, I do think you need to look at his post-prime as a person after retirement. And I don't think anyone's really done that well, except to lionize him as this spiritual God. Uh, I would like to put together another boxing collection based on how this one does. I do think there's a lot of good efforts to be written. Personally, I'd like to write the uh, definitive essay on the top 10 heavyweight champions of all time, really making the arguments for people. Uh, right. That seems to like, be very interesting. Uh, and I do, I edit the Journal of Civil and Human Rights, which comes out two times a year. So there's constantly a new flow of essays coming in for me to edit. So that keeps me busy as well. Hmm. Well, we will keep our eyes open for those projects in the future. Carlo, Mike, thanks so much for joining us on New Books in History. Thanks, Carl. Thank you.